the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast. I'm Cliff Taylor, standing in this week for Kieran Hancock. On today's show, we look at the problems at Harland & Wolf, the famous Belfast shipbuilders, which went into administration yesterday, putting 130 jobs and a legacy of 166 years of shipbuilding in jeopardy. To discuss this, I'll be joined on the line from Belfast by reporter Francis MacDonald, and here in studio by financial journalist and author Eamon Fingleton. But first, Laura Slattery is in studio for a roundup of some of the week's other stories. Laura, first today we look at the travails of Smurfa Kappa in Italy, where they've run into some difficulties. Tell us more. Yeah, so this is the Irish box maker Smurfit Kappa. It's quite big in the uh, packaging sector. It's been fined 124 million in an Italian cartel investigation, which dates back a few years now. Uh, Smurfit Kappa's offices were raided. I think it was 2017. So basically, they've it's you know they've been accused of price fixing along with a number of other companies in their sector, and they uh, completely deny this and say they're they're going to uh, vigorously appeal the fine. But at the moment, you know, it's quite. A a significant amount of money, 124 million, and they're going to have to book it on their uh, accounts as an exceptional charge. Um, so it's kind of uh, it's a tricky one for them, although their share price hasn't been too affected. Okay, a, a one-off one, but but a tricky one, as you say. And one of their rivals secured immunity by cooperating with the investigators, I believe. So that emerged today, yes. Yeah, so that's DS Smith. So that's a British uh, company. And, you know, they would have been fined actually more than Smurf at Kappa. They would have been fined about 140 million, it seems. Mm. But um, they've cooperated with the Italian Competition Authority, which is called the AGCM. And um, it seems like they gave it some information, you know, about what, you know, what they alleged uh, was happening. Um, this dates back to uh, the actual um, alleged period of price fixing is, is 2015 and 16. A series of meetings was apparently held, uh, the Italians say. But DS Smith seems to have uh, kind of got itself out of the fine. But, you know, Smurfa Kappa may yet uh, successfully appeal. Um, the company uh, say they're very disappointed by what's happened. But the allegation is they got together with a number of competitors. Yeah, and there's a number of companies involved. Set prices the, for the customers, kept group. them higher than they would have been. Yeah. Um, so it's you know it's, it's an antitrust investigation and that that's where it is. But it's a it's a significant enough fine. Absolutely, as we say, always tricky when competitors in in a business sit down together in a room. Next news about Karen Mill and Cost. Yeah, so Karen Millen, which also owns uh, the chain Coast, um, so they're both kind of, you know, I wouldn't uh, probably say mid-market, I suppose they specialise in okay. workwear, party wear, Coast is where people would go if they were guests at a wedding. Okay. Um, but they don't, you know, they've been sort of in trouble the last few years. I don't think they have any standalone sh- shops left in Ireland, but they, they'd be a regular presence as a concession in department stores. Okay. And they have about 30 standalone shows, stores, I should say, in the, in Britain. But what's happened is, you know... Quite a big name, obviously, yeah. What's happened is is that their owner, which is the Icelandic bank Kauting, which is kind of a legacy of the financial crash because Kauting would have kind of inherited from mm. the Icelandic group Bager and a couple of other investors who had trouble uh, during the, uh, uh, the, the bust years. Um, so they put it up for sale and the buyer has turned out to be the online retailer Boohoo. Now they're they're British as well but they're they're kind of like an online pennies. They're, they're the sort of cheapest chips. They're, they're in a different market really okay. than Karen Millen and uh, Coast. 
But it's more evidence, I guess, of an upper hand for e-commerce versus, you know, bricks and mortar retailers because it looks like a lot of jobs are going to go now. Are they going to keep the shops open or do we know? It seems like they're going to close them after a period of time, yes. So, as I say, that that means some concessions uh, might disappear here too as well. For example, you know, there's a, I know there's a Karen Millen concession in Arnott's, for example. I think there's one, might be one in Brown Thomas. Certainly, um, it's, it, a host is one that you would see in Debenhams and places like that. Okay. And, uh, yeah, there's uh, another, it's another blow for the, um, I guess, the British High Street in particular uh, because, as I said, they don't really have any standalone shops here now anymore although Karen Millen was on Graffin Street and Coast was on Stephen's Green for many years mm. um, but it's tough times and a lot of these brands that typically would have appeared as department co- store concessions and done very well for many years are, are now suddenly in trouble yeah so um, Philip Green's Arcadia group is, is the same so mm. uh, they own uh, Top Shop is their main one Dorothy Perkins Miss Selfridge um yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, Mon- Monsoon Accessorizes is another sort of that again, then the sort of similar kind of uh, price price range. All of these brands were doing really well at the start of this century mm. and they've all seemed to have slumped a little bit. Kaupthing still owns um, another two uh, brands, fashion brands, and uh, mainly uh, they're aimed at women. Um, that's Oasis and Warehouse. Okay. And uh, they've been trying to find a buyer for them too, but there hasn't been anyone so... So it's kind of an open question what happens there. Okay. And finally, it hasn't been a great time, it's fair to say, for the media industry in recent years, but somebody is hiring at uh, hiring journalists at big at big salaries. <laughs> Which is good news. <laughs> Tell I know, us more. but it would be good news if we were experts in football, Cliff, which Indeed. which were, I don't think either of us are. Um, I could probably fake it. I think that's the whole game, really, of journalism is faking it a little bit, isn't it? But yeah, there's this US, uh, it's an ad-free subscription company called The Athletic. And it's been, you know, in the US for a few years now, covering baseball, basketball, American football. And um, it's now uh, going after British journalists in a really big way, hiring top uh, football writers from The Times, The Guardian, BBC and it's officially launched this week ahead of ahead of the start of the Premier League um, and it costs less than you know 30 quid sterling uh, a year to to get it in the first year so it's it's a, it's an attractive um, proposition if you're a fan of those particular writers okay and the economics of it is a subscription model sell a lot of subscriptions at a relatively low price I presume yeah I mean they say they're actually they already have 500,000 subscribers which is huge okay. in the US I mean that, you know that's it's, that's massive uh, and it's targeting a million and yeah okay it's a pretty you know if you have discounts right left and centre that's a pretty uh, low revenue per mm. subscriber um, but it has the advantage of having something about like 80 million euro in venture capital money. So, mm. you know, unlike a lot of newspapers would struggle to <laughs> to get that kind of venture capital cash. But a new company can come along and, you know, they're based in San Francisco. Mm. They, you know, they talk the talk uh, yeah. and they can come along and actually, you know, gut um, newspapers of one of their you know, supposedly and in fact, actually, their prime asset, which is their their experts, their top names, their top journalists. Yeah, and I suppose no legacy there of printing costs and selling newspapers and the things that traditional media companies are struggling with. So yeah, but I think what's in. really interesting about this is, as I said, as they've gone, you know, they've gone this for this approach of of hiring poaching spree 
Whereas a lot of other people who've, you know, trumpeted the fact that they've no legacy costs have actually, ta- you know, had taken a kind of a low cost approach to personnel as well. Yeah. And as the athletic themselves are saying, what they've done is, you know, what others have done is hire a gaggle of miserable graduates, you know, yeah. and, and have them rehash stories, you know, that are actually stolen from the news media mm-hmm. uh, in effect. And really the game there is all about, you know, being the best at Google. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is sort of about journalism. Yeah. Premium product and interesting to see how it works. Laura Slattery, thank you. Thanks. Stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with me, Cliff Taylor. Harland and Wolfe, the famous Belfast shipbuilder, has gone into administration. Francis MacDonald in Belfast, bring us up to date with what's happened over the last couple of days. So Harland is officially in the hands of administrators uh, from the business advisory firm BDO Northern Ireland. Uh, They are going through the books today. And when I was talking to some of the union representatives earlier, they're working quite closely with the unions because there's a a real sort of emphasis in trying to work in partnership to find a solution. Uh, At the moment, there aren't any active bidders. There have been a few approaches from what I understand today. Uh, A number of organisations are are interested in sort of talking about the site, seeing what the potential might be. But there's no active bidders at the moment. And uh, unions are quite disappointed that the British government hasn't responded very positively to their calls to renationalise the yard. Uh, The British government has sort of described it as a commercial issue that they don't want to get involved with. And that's been a huge, massive disappointment to the unions because I think they were hoping that they would even get a shortfall funding to just tide them over for a couple of weeks to try and get some contracts in. But the British government is saying that this would be against EU state aid rules. Is that correct? They are. They they have used that sort of terminology with the unions. The unions uh, are sort of saying there could be ways around it because in Scotland, they are actually looking at the moment at uh, nationalising one of the shipyards there, which is in trouble, uh, Ferguson on the Clyde. And the unions have used this as an example to suggest, okay, there might be imaginative ways to look at that. But uh, there was a union conference call with Julian Smith, the Northern Ireland Secretary of State yesterday, and he directly told them that in his opinion, nationalisation was not the most sensible approach, that the UK government wasn't going to sort of back that horse. And I would say now from that perspective, nationalisation is is not going to be an option at all for the yard. And how many jobs are we talking about, Francis? Well, we're basically talking about a core number of jobs of around 130. Now, Harland and Wolfe at one stage back in the Second World War time, uh, employed 35,000 people, but there has been a significant drop off in Harlot Wolf because it no longer, we haven't built a ship in Belfast mm. since 2003. Um, Harlot Wolf has been really dedicated towards heavy engineering and it has done quite well in doing uh, sort of oil rigs and sort of a lot of the, the new renewable energy uh, sort of from wind turbines. Harlot Wolf has kind of established itself. It's quite a good, strong reputation in that market, but the core workforce now is, is just 100. 30 people. Yes, it's a far cry from what it was. Eamon Fingleton, remind us just how significant uh, Harland and Wolf was to the economy of Northern Ireland uh, going back over the years. Well, uh, in the 50s, it was regarded as the biggest shipyard in the, in the world. 
biggest ship uh, builder. Um, and um, but um, as far as the economy generally was concerned, it was probably um, accounting for fifty percent of the province's exports, something like that. It was really the heart of, of that economy, and that economy was very successful in those days. If you uh, came to it from a, a vantage point in the Republic, you felt you were going from Mexico to the United States. Uh, everything looked so much uh, more efficient, uh, impressive on the other side of the border in those days. Yeah, of course, all the historic heavy industry was located in the in, in, in the north right. uh, when partition happened. And it took the Republic many, many years to catch up via the entry of FDI, Foreign Direct Investment. Uh, absolutely. And uh, so apart from shipbuilding, they had uh, textile machinery, mm. they had linen, uh, they had in dairy, they had shirt making, uh, and everybody was employed. Uh, it was a booming economy. Mm, Gallagher's, shorts. Uh, tobacco, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Big, really big, big companies, the scale of which even today we'd never see, uh, we wouldn't see in the Republic, I think. A company employing 35,000 people is, is an extraordinary size, but how come Harlander Wolf declined over, over over such a long period of years, Eamon? How did it move from being a, a massive exporter, the biggest shipyard in the world, to really something, a, a much smaller operation uh, as it is now? I, I think there were several factors, but uh, the most important by far would be that London decided that the manufacturing was not that important anymore. Uh, so by the late 60s, early 70s, um, he- heavy industry was on the back burner as far as London was concerned. And uh, that had several consequences, of which the most obvious was that, the, um, that, that London began pursuing a policy of propping up the pound at unrealistic levels um, so that uh, major industries were uncompetitive vis-a-vis particularly the Japanese and the Germans. And meanwhile, the Germans and the Japanese and later the Koreans came in with currencies that were as low as they could possibly get them. And therefore, um, the, the, their um, the competing industries uh, were highly competitive against British industries. Mm. And... 2002, 2003 was the last ship that was actually built in the shipyard. Right, yeah. Um, So uh, already by 2002, 2003, uh, the business was largely gone, actually. But there's a wider story here, isn't there, Eamon? Because there were huge shipyards as well in Glasgow, Newcastle, Liverpool, right across the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom was was the world leader in in building ships. And, and, And as you say, the whole thing was let fade away. Right, and as far as I can see, um, the shipbuilding industry in the UK now is largely confined to uh, Navy contracts. Mm-hmm. So the, the big commercial contracts that were so important in the 50s and 60s, they're all gone. Uh, the tankers, for instance, that Shell and uh, BP used to uh, build in Belfast or in Glasgow or wherever, uh, are now built in probably Seoul or, or uh, even China these days. Sure. Talk to me about the the wider importance of Harland and Wolf because Northern Ireland has always been a divided society to some extent, and the vast majority, although not all of the employees in Harland and Wolf, came from the loyalist side of the track. Uh, and as you say, as we looked across the border uh, back in the sixties and seventies at this 
richer country, uh, this richer province up the north, um, this is what we were this is what we were looking at. Right. Um, I, as far as I can see, the uh, troubles and the, the the social dislocation in the north had very little to do with Harlan Wolf's fate. Um, the the they, they didn't really lose a day of work because of the troubles. There w- were one or two minor political issues over the years, but very small in relation to, to the total story. But nonetheless, it was hugely important for the loyalist community in Belfast. It was, as you wrote, I think, in your article, uh, as you were growing up in, 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 uh, in the loyalist community in the North, this was the, this was the place you, were, you, you hoped you would work when you, uh, when you went into the workforce. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the, the wages were high and everybody was uh, busy. Uh, I think one of the tragedies is that uh, when Harland Wolf uh, began to decline, uh, you had waves of redundancies of loyalist workers who suddenly had a lot of time on their hands, and some of them were tempted to get into the terrorism business. And, and that's a contrast with the 50s. In the 50s, the IRA was active, but there was no response from the, the loyalist community. They left it to the established authorities to deal with the IRA, and uh, uh, within a couple of years, um, the authorities had the problem under control. Um, well, what happened in the 80s and 90s was that, of course, the loyalists, because they were unemployed, were active in terrorism, and uh, that created an, an even bigger response on the Republican side. Okay. Uh, Francis, obviously, as well as a economic issue in the North, this is also a very significant political issue Partly because of the history of Harland and Wolf, uh, but partly because of, of of other threats to the North's economy at the moment, and the DUP is under a bit of pressure on this one. Am I right in saying that? Absolutely, because Harland and Wolf is in the DUP heartland. That is a traditionally strong DUP constituency, mm. and for Arlene Foster to be in the driving seat and potentially lose a symbol like Harland and Wolf at this moment in time. It's just unthinkable, really. You know, 10 years ago, you could never have imagined that Harlan and Wolf would be under threat, not because people thought it was a very strong industrial commercial success, because, you know, it's well known that the British government has been propping up Harlan and Wolf really as far back as 1966. Mm. You know, it's estimated that there could be something like around a billion pounds of British money that has been poured in to keep Harlan and Wolf afloat. Mm. But it is a really strong symbol in East Belfast. And I think that's really, you know, the DUP has been very focal in saying, you know, it will do all that it can and it's, you know, in its power. And now we, we know with the confidence and supply agreement um, previously with Theresa May and their close relationship with Boris Johnson, that they will be putting a lot of pressure on Boris Johnson to see what he can do to sort of, you know, symbol like create some kind of symbol that is, is going to show that they, there's still a lot of support there for him. So as Boris Johnson uh comes back to work in, in September, this could be an issue uh, that's on the table as he as he discusses the future of the government of the DUP. Yeah, I think the DUP will definitely have it on the table. And you know, we, we saw the other day uh, some of the senior union representatives saying, you know, if the DUP do not do something very strongly, you know, show, show their support, actually create some kind of link to ensure that Harlan and Wolf is going to survive, that they'll run candidates in East Belfast against the DUP basically on this ticket because they failed to support Harlan and Wolf. Without underplaying it, the scale of it, uh, Francis, we're, we're talking about 130 jobs here, which is which is significant but not enormous. It's is this more symbolic? 
It's not, yeah, it is absolutely symbolic. It's not like Bombardier, which is just around the corner. Mm. You know, they still have 4,000 jobs. They are obviously in trouble too. We're still waiting to hear if there's going to be a buyer emerge for mm. Bombardier. And the 130 jobs is, is compared to that, of course, every job in Northern Ireland counts, sure. but it, it is symbolic. It's it's the history of, of Harnett and Wolf. It's what Belfast used to be. It's that sort of, we hark back to our wonderful industrial, strong manufacturing past. Mm. And I suppose also, you know, regardless of which community you come from, Harnett and Wolf has dominated the Belfast skyline, mm. you know, in, in the last 50 years. And so people have this notion that it's in, intrinsically linked into the city. You know, it is this emotional anchor. If you fly back into Northern Ireland, if you've been out of it and you're flying into Belfast City Airport, you see the cranes and you know your home. What's the feeling in the nationalist community, Francis, to what's happened? I think, uh, you know, there is, there's been very strong support right across all of the unions. There's been, you know, right across the, 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 the sort of the board, you've seen strong union support. And actually up in Stormont the other day, whenever Boris Johnson had arrived, uh, you know, one of the unions was chanting in Irish to save the shipyard. So, you know, I kind of think... It's bringing it, it a couple of issues really, together in an unusual way, you might say. Yeah, but it's not, it's not a strong, uh, you know, green and orange political issue in Northern Ireland. I think there has been this kind of, you know, uh, approach where people are backing the workers. You know, there's been quite strong community support. They had a family fun day on Sunday and it was quite obvious that, you know, everybody from across the community in Belfast was down there, you know, supporting them. I think... Harlington Wolf has had that influence throughout the city that people have a slight affection for it, regardless of where you're coming from on the political spectrum. Okay, interesting. Eamon, is there a future for a heavy industry like this in an economy like Northern Ireland now, if the government has said it's not going to step in? Um, I, it's it's hard to see it, frankly, uh, because uh, it's one thing to uh, lose an industry. It's another thing to revive it. Uh, mm. In a moment of absent-mindedness, uh, Britain, has, uh, the UK, has lost its heavy industries, mm. and uh, frankly, no, no going back. It, it, the, no going back. It, it, the uh, it's the investment involved and the trade dynamics involved um, suggest that uh, it's not going to happen. Okay, Francis, is there concern? A eh, finally up there in Belfast that. Okay, the administrator is going through uh, going through the process. Uh, the administrator is talking to the unions, but that really, this has already gone on for a long time, and that there may we may be looking at closure here. I think the unions are still. If you if you sort of talk to shipyard workers, they're still very upbeat. I was talking to a guy who's uh, one of the protesters yesterday morning, and he said, "Look, we're going to fight on. We're going to save the yard. We actually think there's a business here because you know, not too long ago, three or four years ago, they won a massive contract." Um, from the, the huge wind farm that's been built off the East Anglican coast. And that contract was estimated to be worth around £20 million. Now, if you talk to some of the union reps and some of the industry guys, they say those contracts are still out there. Harlem Wolf still has the infrastructure. They could go back into that market and they could easily win those contracts. But at the moment, there is no finance for them even to go after a contract. Yeah, so... so- you know, they're in a very difficult position. I think if they had got, they were looking for 650000 as a shortfall funding measure from the UK government. If they'd got that, it might have bought them breathing space. But, you know, there, there, is, there is some indication that people are very hopeful, but they wouldn't be staking their house on it at the moment. OK, not a huge amount of money um, on, on the face of it, given the, uh, given the support from, uh, from the Conservative government. 
And, and as you say, the engineering skills that are also in the aircraft industry, they're uh, also under under risk at the moment. And, and wider... Yeah, you- well, if you look at Queen's Island, you know, you've, you've got Harlem and Wolf on one side, you've got Bombardier around the mm. corner. Both of those companies completely, you know, strong, strong manufacturing companies in Northern Ireland, uh, major exporters. And now both of them really in big question marks hanging over their future. And wider concerns, of course, about the risk of a no deal Brexit. Well, that's that's against the backdrop. Every single issue in Northern Ireland is against the backdrop of, of Brexit. And, you know, every time we, we hear Boris Johnson's coming over to, to Northern Ireland, the full concern of the business community is we're going to crash and burn if we don't have a, a deal of some, some situation. And I think, you know, particularly whenever you look at Bombardier, that has been one of the major issues. Bombardier have all along said a no-deal Brexit isn't going to be good for its business. And now there's a for sale sign above that building. So there's a big concern about the future of those jobs and, and basically manufacturing jobs right across the board in the north. Okay. Eamon, finally, the north after a no-deal Brexit, a worrying a worrying proposition from an economic point of view. And probably politically, but... It seems to me that uh, if I were the DUP, I'd be concentrating on uh, getting a deal on uh, Bombardier. Mm. That 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 really is the live issue there. Uh, there, are, as as Francis has pointed out, a lot of jobs still there, mm. uh, and that's a viable business, frankly, if, if if they get to it in time. Sure. Okay, we'll keep our fingers crossed for both those companies. Uh, Francis McDonnell in Belfast and Emil Fingleton here in Studio in Dublin. Thank you for joining us. Okay, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to all our contributors, Eamon Fingleton, Francis MacDonald and Laura Slattery. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.